The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. What a great hymn. Praise God. What is well with my soul. The last words of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, describe five very important events, and uh, they are the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of course, the ascension back to the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the commission to make disciples of all nations, and the announcement of the second coming of Christ. And uh, we see all five of those themes come together in Acts chapter 1. We, we saw all five of those themes come together, and we took uh, three weeks to study Acts chapter 1, and we're going to turn now to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to take three weeks to study the ch- second chapter of Acts as well. And today, we're going to look at what it is that actually occurred on the day of Pentecost. Next week, we will consider Peter's sermon on that day of Pentecost, the content of Peter's sermon. And then thirdly, in a couple of weeks from now, we will look at what was the result, what was the impact of the day of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit on the early church. You'll notice in your sermon insert that I have five points in my sermon uh, rather ambitious kind of this morning, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see how far we get, and uh, they're the all going to blend together to be one big point, I think. So, uh, but let's, uh, let's come before God in prayer before we, we jump into the text. Uh, we, just sang, we just sang, Jesus, take all of me. I run to you. And uh, right now, as we come to prayer, I want you to imagine in your mind that you are the son in the prodigal son story. That you are returning to the father. You see him tucking his cloak up and running toward you in love. And you run to him. I want you to I want to ask you in in this imagination that you have right now, what are, you, what are you running to him with? What's in your hands? What's with you? What do you want to lay at his feet? Father, in this special moment of reflection and as we think about your immense love for us we run to you and we we lay everything at your feet <clears throat> you have heard the prayer of each heart today you have seen the things that they've laid at your feet today in prayer you know the struggles of the soul lord you know everything We thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit to teach us how to pray and to to connect us to you. Today we ask you to help us, Holy Spirit, to understand more about you, O Father, to know more about your Son, Christ, our Savior. Lord, uh, I pray that today everyone, just like at the day of Pentecost, I pray that everyone today would hear your word in their own language. Lord, that your spirit would 
so transport the message so that people will hear what your spirit wants to say to them from the text in Acts 2 in their own language and give you praise. Lord, would you give me liberty today to be able to preach now and to be used by you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2? Acts, chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 1. And if you're able to stand with me, please stand now as we listen to God's Word. Acts, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. And Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Amen. We were at a staff planning day a couple weeks ago, and one of the staff asked a question that's been on my mind ever since. He asked, what is it that we celebrate in our church? What is it that we celebrate in our church? Well, we celebrated this morning... Prama LaRose's testimony and how God got a hold of her life and, and changed her and brought her to himself. You know, you can tell a lot about a culture by what they celebrate. Today we're going to be looking at a celebration called Pentecost. And we're going to examine some of the roots of that and the meaning of it for us today. And I want to start by talking about the Old Testament. And there's three passages of Scripture that we're going to refer to that help make meaning out of Pentecost. The first one... I want to say, first of all, Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology says that the day of Pentecost was the point of transition between the old covenant work and ministry of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
So this is a watershed day or moment, the day of Pentecost that we've just read about. It is a watershed moment in redemptive history, and we need to understand its significance. First of all, I'll point you back to the, uh, a book, uh, Genesis, and a chapter 11, where there was an event that took place that, that was so very sad on the heart of Father God. In chapter 11 of Genesis, we read about the Tower of Babel. And a time when humanity gathered together, they all spoke one language at that time, and they gathered together and they, they formed a religion of their own making. They decided that what God was revealing to them wasn't enough, that they formed a religion of their own making. And in their pride and in their arrogance and in their independence, they, they came together and they started to construct a tower called the Tower of Babel. And they, they were trying to get close to God and, and call out to God as they, as they did so. God saw that the heart of this was, was pride and arrogance, and he destroyed that temple. He confounded their language, that, that even though they spoke the same language, they couldn't understand each other. And he ended up, they sent them all back to where they'd come from in the various parts of the world at that time. And... Uh, at Babel, people spoke the same language and they could not understand each other. And here at Pentecost that we read about today, they spoke different languages and they could understand each other. What an amazing event this Pentecost was. It was a reversal of the curse of God upon the people of earth on that day when the Tower of Babel was being built. In the Tower of Babel, it was not humanity trying to rise up in some false religion. It was God coming down. Sorry, at the day of Pentecost, it was God coming down, not humanity trying to rise up. And this has huge, huge effect and, and meaning for us about the Great Commission, about God's heart for all nations to take the, the gospel and to make disciples of all nations. John Piper says that it was the spectacular sin at Babel that gave rise to the multiplying of languages, and it ends in the most glorious praise to Christ from every language on earth. Amen. That's what God did. That's what God's doing at Pentecost. He began this incredible work. And the crowds were amazed, it says in verse 7, that even though all of them were Galileans from up north of Jerusalem, Everyone could hear them speaking their own language, more than a dozen different languages at least. The Holy Spirit was providing translation. Can you imagine being on a mission trip, you who just came back from India? Can you imagine you got there and you, you went to, uh, to West Bengal and you were in Alipurduar and you, you began to, Doug, Doug, Pastor Doug said, you're going to share a testimony today, but I'm not ready. Well, you're going to share a testimony today. You get up there and you start sharing your testimony in English. And everybody that's sitting in the pews is hearing it in Bengali. Or you go to Garden Hill this coming summer with a team. And you stand up to share something. And you open your mouth and you start speaking English. And everybody is hearing it in Ojukree. That's what's happening in this day. It wasn't that they were speaking the language, it was that they were being heard. It was three times it said that in Acts chapter 2 that we read. And so, incredible opportunity here. Warren Wearsby 
adds this. He says, God's judgment at Babel scattered the people. God's blessing at Pentecost united the believers. At Babel, the people were unable to understand each other. At Pentecost, God's praise was understood. The Tower of Babel was a scheme designed to praise men. Pentecost was for the praise of God. Babel was an act of rebellion. Pentecost, a ministry of humble submission to God. Amen. Second Old Testament reference is Leviticus 23. In Leviticus 23, we read of the seven annual festivals and feasts that the Jewish people were commanded by the law of Moses to celebrate. And again, what I said earlier is true, that what you find people celebrating is what they value, what's important to them. Each of these festivals or feasts that were celebrated annually commemorated an event, an important time in Israel's history. And yet, they were such, uh, such an event that was only called a shadow of the reality that would come when Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would be revealed. As uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1 says, the Old Testament law and everything about it was only a shadow of the reality that would come in Christ. And so every one of the feasts that is mentioned in Leviticus 23 is, is something meaningful for the Old Testament church and believers, but it was only a shadow of the reality of what its purpose was, which was coming in Jesus Christ. So the first feast that is mentioned is Passover. Passover. Now, what was the Passover all about? Well, you remember the story in, in Exodus where, where the Israelites were slaves for, for hundreds of years in Egypt. And God had led up, raised up Moses to let God's people be liberated from the slavery in Egypt. And it finally, at the last, the last plague that God sent upon Pharaoh to try and get him to release the Israelites and be free was the plague of the firstborn being struck down. And God had sent the destroyer, the angel of death from heaven, and he sent it down and he warned his people. He said, take the best lamb that you have and, and cut it and, and, and make it a sacrifice and take the blood of that lamb and sprinkle that blood on the doorposts of your home, of your house. And every Israelite family obeyed that command and they sprinkled the blood on the doorposts of their homes. And every Egyptian family that did not believe in God did not do that. And that night when the angel of death came down, every Egyptian home had the firstborn child struck dead. And every Israelite home, there was prayer of gladness before God for his mercy. For the angel of death had passed over. And God said, make this a lasting meal. Do this every year and remember how God in his mercy did this for you. And in the New Testament, we read that Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And his blood has been sprinkled on your heart and soul. And, and death and judgment has passed over you because it fell on the lamb, Jesus. And so that's the meaning of the reality of what the whole Passover was about. The next feast mentioned in Leviticus 23 is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After the Passover, they were to make bread that was without yeast. There was no time as they left Egypt in haste. There was no time for wait, to wait for this bread to rise. So he, the Lord commanded them to make bread without leaven, remembering how in haste you left uh, it, Egypt. 
Leaven came to be seen as the presence of evil and falsehood in, in, the, in the Bible. And, and so we see, whereas the Passover reflects the grace of God in Jesus Christ passing over our sin, we see that in the Feast of Unleavened Bread there is this, what is our response to that grace? It is to bring pure faith. It is to bring no falsehood. It is to bring absolute trust in what he's done. Pure faith. No self-righteousness, no, no propping up ourselves before God. Pure faith, unleavened faith. That's the reality that God was pointing to in that feast. The third feast in, verse, in chapter 23 of Leviticus is the feast of first fruits, which was when the grain was harvested and the first fruit was ground into flour and brought into the tabernacle and offered as a sacrifice before God. And in the scriptures in the New Testament, it says that Jesus Christ indeed is our first fruits, the resurrected Christ. And so the first fruits became symbolic of the resurrection. And so just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead as the first fruits of all who will follow, so also we are in Christ and we will be raised from the dead. So you see so far, these three feasts have the reality, grace that saves and passes over sin. Right? Pure faith that responds like unleavened bread. Nothing added. Grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. And then this hope of confidence that I will, be, I will be in the resurrection one day. This is what the three feasts point to. And then we get to the fourth one, the Feast of Weeks. And the Feast of Weeks is what the Pentecost Day is all about. And on that day... It was called Feast of Weeks because they counted from the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They counted seven Sabbaths. Seven weeks was 49 days. The next day is the 50th day. And Penta is 50th in Greek. The Pentecost day was 50 days after the, the Passover feast. Just like Easter, 50 days after Easter is Pentecost Sunday in our calendar. Now the thing that's amazing about this festival is that that the Old Testament scriptures have various reasons for why they celebrated the Feast of Weeks. But in Leviticus 23, what is added in the meaning of this feast is this, that, that when they were harvesting their fields, they were to leave the corners and the edges absolutely alone and not harvest that and to leave the gleanings. And it said very clearly to Israel, Leave them for the poor and for the alien among you. This is the first reference. This is the first reference in the law of Moses to the people outside of Israel. This is the first reference that really clearly reconnects to Abraham's uh, covenant that I will make you a blessing to all nations. This is, this is a reference that says, Israel, it's not just about you. It's about all peoples on this earth. It's about aliens that are among you too. And so we see that this biblical value that our country has of concern for the poor in Canada, this social net that we have, we see that this immigration policy for refugees and so on, our Canadian population, many would not see it as a Judeo-Christian value, but long before there was ever a Canada, this is a value that God has put upon his people. You care for others that don't have as much as you. You care for others that are displaced from other places. And then finally, I want to say the Joel passage of Scripture. 
is, is mentioned in chapter 2 of Acts 17 to 21. And in this passage, we see the prophet Joel and his prophecy being fulfilled. Peter stands up. He's going to interpret what is going on that day. And in a sense, he, what he says is this. He says, this is that. Not the CBC Saturday morning, this is that. But he says, this is that. This, this what you're seeing today on the day of Pentecost is what Joel, the prophet, spoke about. Now, it's not all of that. It's only a portion of that. Why is that? You see, when the prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Joel, when they spoke hundreds of years before the time of the coming of Christ, they were speaking like they were looking from way back ahead to the time of the Messiah coming to the earth. And they really didn't distinguish between the first and the second coming of Christ and the church age that we are living in. You know, like it's, you, what it's like when you're flying into some place, you're driving somewhere, all you see is in the distance this huge mountain. But as you get up closer, you realize it's not just one mountain. It's, it's a series of mountains. Well, that's the way the Old Testament prophets saw the entire New Testament and this entire church age. They didn't distinguish between what was at the beginning of the last days and what was at the end of the last days. But you see, the Scripture teaches us that we are living in the last days. And there's dozens of Scriptures that speak in the New Testament to the fact that the last days began with the first coming of Christ and they'll end with the second coming of Christ. And the, the, the last days began with a day and the last days will end with a day. And the Scriptures talk about both of those days very clearly. The first day is the day of Pentecost. That's when the last days began. And the days, the last days will end on the day of the Lord, mentioned here in verse 20 of Acts chapter 2, the glorious, great and glorious day of the Lord. Now, what's, what's significant about everything that happens in the last days that we're living in? We've been living in since the day of Pentecost. We'll live in them Till the day of the Lord, whether your eschatology says that's on the second coming of Christ or some other time around the end, I don't know. And right now we don't have time to talk about that. But the point is that what's significant about the last days is verse 21. Everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, there's coming a day when that won't be true. And so it's incredible, this time that we're living in, this church age, these last days, very significant. And so not everything that Joel spoke of on the day of Pentecost, or sorry, that was prophesied of through Peter is true. For example, we don't see on the day of Pentecost, verse 19 and 20, where blood and fire, billows of smoke, moon turned to blood, and so on. We didn't see that on the day of Pentecost. We haven't seen it in our day. And that's because that is talking about something that's much closer to the end of the last days before the great and glorious day of the Lord. Then we're going to see the moon turn to blood and all of these kinds of things that will accompany the very final age of this earth. But again, Joel is prophesying the whole thing. Let's move on to talk about a second point, and that is that 
What is baptism of the Holy Spirit and Pentecost? How are they related? Well, throughout the church age, there have been many people that have found themselves disagreeing about what a genuine experience of God the Spirit is all about. I remember when I first uh, attended Bible college and I, and I had a roommate that one weekend said, would you pray for me? I come to, I'm going to be asking my friends to pray for me to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit because I want to speak in tongues. And that's what he believed, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the speaking in tongues were all the, the same package. And so he went that weekend, his friends prayed over him. On Monday he came back and, and I asked him how it went. He said, well, he, he didn't get it. And he was quite, quite disappointed. And he, he was, he was, it was a faith crisis. Why? why? Why they get it and I don't get it kind of thing. There's that extreme, I know, in, in the church of Jesus Christ. There's another extreme in the church of Jesus Christ. And, and they're afraid of anything that has to do with Holy Spirit. Um, Timothy Keller kind of jokes about this, and he says that, that for some people, the Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. We're a little more comfortable with that. But it's the Holy Spirit. And so what is it that we can say about the Pentecost experience and, and the baptism of the Spirit in some of these terms? I want to just share some facts with you now. And... Um, I think most of the references are, are listed, but uh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to list them right now, but I think they're in that pink insert. And first of all, I want to say that there are seven passages, seven times in the entire New Testament where the word baptism of the Spirit is, is used. Four of them are by John the Baptist talking about what Jesus is going to do when he comes. Okay, four of them. The other, there's two more that happen and, and are referenced to Pentecost, chapter 1 of Acts 1 and then Acts chapter 11 talking back about what happened at Pentecost. So two of them there. And then the seventh one is in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, when Paul says, For we were all baptized with this one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, etc. We were all baptized into one body by one spirit. And so what I conclude from these seven references is that, number one, if there's any baptism of the Spirit, Jesus is always doing it. That Jesus was the one that was baptizing by the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And that since that time, that whenever anyone comes to Jesus Christ, that whenever someone is, is through repentance and faith genuinely born again, they are baptized by the Holy Spirit. By Jesus Christ. They are baptized with the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit by Jesus Christ. And that is, that is what Paul seems to be teaching in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. He says, for we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. And again, it helps if you remember what I shared a couple of weeks ago. Let's not confuse our pronouns, folks. Let's not start calling the Holy Spirit an it. Let's call him who he is. He is the Spirit of the Father. That's all. So what is the Spirit of the Father about when it comes to adopting you or I into His family? Well, the Spirit of the Father is that I want my DNA on that child of mine. If that is truly a child of mine, I don't differentiate. There's no favorites in my family. Every child of mine has my DNA. My Spirit is upon them. If they've come to know my Son through Jesus Christ and faith in Him. So... I think it helps to just clarify every believer has been baptized 
in the Holy Spirit, has the Holy Spirit. You either have them or you don't. You can't have more of them. And um, that's the way it is. I think that's what Scripture teaches. It's not necessarily related to speaking in tongues at all. Warren Wearsby says the baptism of the Spirit means that I belong to His body, and the fullness of the Spirit means that my body belongs to Him. That's what it means. What is the tongues spoken of in Acts then? Let's talk about that. You might be surprised to know that there's only three times in the book of Acts where tongues is spoken. Glossolalia. Only three times. The first is day of Pentecost, chapter 2. The next one is when the Gentiles received the gospel in chapter 10. And then after that in chapter 19 when the church at Ephesus uh, understand that there's a Holy Spirit. Tongues in these scriptures, all of them in Acts, Tongues always refer to a language that was in existence at the time. It is not the same as what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 when he talks about tongues, same word used. But in that case, later on in the church, it's talking about a gift of the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't seem to be languages that were understood on earth at the time, but rather ecstatic utterances that were unintelligible. And so Paul says, wouldn't it be better if we spoke intelligible words or at least that if there is the tongues being spoken, that there is a translator, an interpreter with that gift so that it can be explained and that everybody present is going to get edified. So we've got to differentiate between the tongues of Acts and the tongues gift of the Holy Spirit found in Corinthians and so on. I think that's a, a clear delineation. There are many times in the book of Acts also when, when it says that the Holy Spirit came down, but there were no tongues being spoken at all. And there's various references to that. What the Bible says is that we're not supposed to seek a baptism of the Spirit. It's something that God does in His Son Jesus already. But it does say we're seek to be seeking to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 and so again, like Warren Wearsby says, like our Lord's death at Calvary, Pentecost was a once-for-all event that will not be repeated, and we would not ask for another Pentecost any more than we would ask for another Calvary. God gave us His Spirit. That's, it's upon His church. He's, he's with us now. And he, and he wants to do the ministry of Jesus on earth. He wants to carry on this great commission. And that's what the third point is all about. Why did Jesus pour out his spirit on the day of Pentecost? It was all about being witnesses to the very uttermost parts of the world. Isn't it exciting that the very first time that the gospel is preached, after Jesus has returned to the Father, everybody hears it in their own language? Isn't that sort of prophetic about something that God wants to do through the Great Commission? People hearing the gospel in their own language. We've already mentioned the last days. I've referred to that. This was that. I talked about Joel's prophecy. And um, I want to just comment on what verse 21 says when it says that all, who, all people, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in this scripture, when it says in verse 17 that he's going to pour out his spirit on all people, what does that mean? Well, let the Scripture interpret the Scripture. And to me, all people is, is, is what he says when he goes on to say sons and daughters, young men, old men, servants, both men and women. Is anybody left out? <laughs> You're either young or old. 
either a man or a woman, either a son or a daughter, you're either a servant or a master. I don't think anybody's left out here. What does it mean, all people? It means everyone who's called upon the name of the Lord, regardless of your gender and your class in society and your age. It's everybody is going to receive the Holy Spirit, and, and I'm going to deploy my entire church in every generation to accomplish my worldwide task of worldwide evangelism. Every people group, every language, every family on earth has to hear about the glorious Son of God. That's the issue, right? That's what it's about. We can't, we can't separate that out. That's what it's all about. Finally, let us talk about Pentecost and us. And um, whatever you might have heard from Um, from this message today, I want you to take home clearly the message that God the Father wants a closer relationship with you than you have already. And he's made it possible through his indwelling Holy Spirit. And secondly, that God the Father has no favorites on earth. Every culture, every language, every people group, he loves us all. And R.C. Sproul has said it this way, there is no special Christians, only a special Christ. We have no need to ask him to give us more. We need only ask him to help us see that all he has given us, he already has given us. It really has to do more with not me asking him for more of himself, but me surrendering more of myself to what he's already given me in his son and in his spirit. And so Jesus Christ wants to release more and more this dynamic of his power upon us, using our lives. Not, he did not save us so that we would enjoy dead religious duty, yawning boredom, suffocating guilt, condemnation. He, he saved us so that we could be freed up with a joy message to take to the world. They can also know the grace of God. I read, I read an author uh, that speaks about the Normandy landings in June of 1944 as an analogy to Calvary, what Jesus did at the cross, in the sense that the world knew when the Allied forces landed at Normandy, the world knew that the war was essentially over. Just as Satan, the enemy, knew that when Jesus Christ took upon the sins of the world on Calvary, he knew it was over. It is finished, Jesus said. And yet, the high command of the German army refused to accept defeat, and some of the bloodiest battles took place after D-Day, and between then and what was called later V-Day, or Victory Day. Similarly, after Jesus Christ died on the cross, between now and His second coming, These days are some of the bloodiest battles in spiritual warfare. And the enemy, Satan, has two focal points. He wants, first of all, to keep every unbeliever in absolute darkness. He wants them not to hear about Jesus. He wants a Canadian population that is biblically illiterate. He wants a people that are so bloody entertained that they have no time to address the issues of their own souls. And he wants the church of Jesus Christ, those who are are saved and sanctified in him. The enemy, Satan, wants us to be so distracted, like the world, with other things, that we do not have time or prayer or energies to focus on the supreme calling that God left us with, 
to make disciples of all nations, including our neighbors. That we will be witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and we'll be witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, unto the ends of the earth. That's what it's all about. Friends, that's what I believe God has called us to, and that's what we need to remember. Ephesians 5.18, command, be filled. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled. That means don't let anything else hinder your walk with the Father. At the beginning of the sermon when I said what's in your hand as you come running to the Father, or whatever was in your hand, whatever was with you, you can lay it at His feet. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can exchange whatever you're carrying for the filling of God, and He can empower your life to make it unlike anything you've ever thought. It doesn't have to take a long time, as we heard in Pramila's uh, testimony this morning. It happened in an instance. The filling of the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about the baptism of the Spirit. I'm talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit. And are we not to pray that God would send even more times of refreshing? Do we not want more times of refreshing? That the church would be revived. That the dark world would awaken. That God would have His way on earth. The word filled in Ephesians 5.18, plerao, I looked it up this morning, 87 times used in the New Testament. It's usually translated fulfill, not fill, but fulfill. Be fulfilled in the Spirit. Don't get drunk on wine. I love what Timothy Keller says. He says this, the Holy Spirit does not fill us like alcohol does. Alcohol is a depressant. It doesn't mean you get depressed, but but getting drunk depresses part of your brain function. The reason that you're happy when you're drunk is because you're stupid. You are less aware of reality. The things that bothered you when you were fully aware don't bother you because you can't think straight. The Holy Spirit, though, He gives you joy with intelligence. He shows you the reality of God's bigness and God's gospel. And, think, and then the things that were bothering you once become very small. This is God's Word. This is God's Spirit for His church, for you and I, for every one of us. There's no secondhand citizen in the kingdom of Christ. He wants you to be filled. I'm going to ask Pastor Elf to come and pray for us as we conclude our service. Would someone help him come forward? Sean, could you... Give uh, Pastor Elf a hand, and, and I'm going to ask that God would uh, dismiss us with the benediction from Pastor Elf, and then indeed we might find ourselves this week walking in the Spirit. Thank you, brother. Just a, a, a very, very vital word. Remember that the Holy Spirit is real, that for you, He's extremely important. He's the one that's going to help you in this stage of life. And you're going to need him all the way through your life. And also remember, he loves you, and he's going to guide you. Oh, God. You who in your wisdom planned a multiple way of coming to us, with your blessings and with your strength 
with your wisdom and with your love, we come to you and ask that your Holy Spirit guide us, give us the courage to seek to be filled with your Spirit, as you told us to do. Give us the sensibility to understand what that all means as time goes on. And give us a calling that compels us to follow his guidance now and forevermore. Amen.